Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the day. best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Or with me in the studio is my producer, Mr. Dan Unfurled. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. <laughs> hello. I have no comments today. So I am still happy, though, because Lisa wrote me twice. So uh, who knows? Maybe she'll be writing a third and fourth time. But anyway, get on the stick out there and, and uh, write in so we, we are, are really excited. All right, on our last program, I was discussing the chapter titled Hanslow, and that's chapter 7. And uh, the, the, the very last thing we were talking about is that, that uh, Winston, young Winston had met a man named M. Paul Cambon, and uh, he uh, he had got to have a talk with him. He came to lunch at his mother's house, and they were talking about how rapidly England had changed, like over a twenty-year period, from the beginning of the century until until the time of uh, like eighteen ninety-six, when Queen Victoria was now in her sixtieth uh, year of accession. And so, so they were they were mourning the fact that. Essentially, England had been revolutionized without a shot. And at the very top of page 91, I'll just continue with the statement. It says, The governing class have been almost entirely deprived of political power and to a very large extent of their property and estates. And this has been accomplished almost imperceptibly without the loss of a single life. He says, I suppose this is true. And so, so he's saying, essentially that in 20 years that there was this revolution and it was essentially, they, he called them the socialists. Today, we'd call them the communists. But in just 20 years, England was a different place. And so, so you know, where are we headed? Uh, you know, if, if uh, things aren't done or fixed soon, where is America heading? And, uh, you know, how much time have we been dealing with this anyway? But the, the, the next thing he goes into, and this is, we're still, you know, in, uh, in chapter seven, but he talks about his, his uncle, and his uncle was the eighth Duke of Marlborough. And they lived on an estate called Deep Dean. And it, it's, it's really, I, I looked it up, by the way, uh, on Wikipedia, because I wanted to see it. And, uh, it, it is, it's still, it still exists. It's, the gardens there. I, I think the house has actually been torn down, but the gardens are there, and it's still they're they're considered what they call District Two history. So so these gardens are full of these lions, and they're full of flowers and everything. And um, uh, so he starts talking about his his aunt and his his uncle, and they were living on this this uh, absolutely wonderful piece of property he goes on he goes on to say um, 
Lillian, widow of my uncle, the 8th Duke of Marlborough, the daughter of a commodore in the American Navy, and, a, and very wealthy by an earlier marriage, had recently married third wedlock Lord William Beresford. He was the youngest of Lord Waterford's three brothers, each of whom was a man of mark. Their early eldest, Charlie, was the famous admiral. The second, Marcus, made a great place for himself in society and on the turf, so we can't forget the turf. I mean, that's the polo games and things like that. He said the third bill, the soldier, had won the Victoria Cross in Zululand. All my life until they died, I kept coming across these men. And so, so again, uh, you know, Winston is reflecting back on his earlier days, but these are the men he came in contact with. These are the men that, that accomplished something in their lives. They, they, were, they were wealthy, but they still did a lot for England. He goes on to say, Lord William and Lillian Duchess had married in riper years, but their union was happy, prosperous, and even fruitful. They settled down at beautiful Deepdean near Dorking and bade me visit them continually. I took a strong liking to Bill Beresford. He seemed to have every quality which could fascinate a Calvary subaltern. He was a man of the world, acquainted with every aspect of clubland and society. Now, he could have been a little better than clubland and society. <laughs> he said for long years he had been military secretary both to Lord Dufferin and Lord Lansdowne, successive viceroys of India. And so, so you're really getting a view of the empire when you read this book. And, uh, but you gotta, you gotta pay attention to it. You gotta just take the time and say, oh, this is boring, but then it's really not. He said he was a grand sportsman who lived his whole life in companionship with horses. And so, so and now he goes and he lists the list of things, what he did on his horses. So he loved polo. He loved pig sticking, pony racing, horse racing, together with shooting big game of every kind and had played a constant part in his affairs. As a young officer of the 12th Lancer, he had won a large bet by walking after dinner from the Blue Mess at Knightsbridge to the Calfrey Barracks at Hunslow, there catching a badger kept by the 10th Hussars and carrying it back in a bag on his shoulders to the expectant mess at Knightsbridge in an exceedingly short time considering the distance. All right, that really piqued my interest. <laughs> I'm thinking, what, what does this really mean? I'll, I'll talk to you about this funny thing before we start talking about Deep Dean some more. All right. So the, the pig sticking, if we go back to polo, polo is, is on a field. It's like a, a football on horses, I guess, <laughs> or maybe hockey on horses. You got a club and a small ball. But then with the horses, they went pig sticking. I had to look that up. What is pig sticking? And essentially, it was you had to have a spear and you were chasing wild boars and you had to kill them with the spear because they'd probably bite you back you know so so anyway that was pig sticking so so they did they like their boar fighting all right now why would this man and again he was a young officer of the 12 lancers why would he walk with a a badger in a bag and give it to the blues mess at Knightbridge. And 
I found out something very queasy about the British. British like to eat badger meat. <laughs> I actually have a newspaper that say, British retiree talks of the finer points of eating badger. <laughs> so, so now, not every Englishman eats badger, you know. So, so, but I, if you, if you go through and do a little bit of, of research on it, during World War One and World War Two, there was a, you know, there was a lot of, not a lot of food. And so a lot of the British would eat bunnies, but then there were other British that would eat badgers. And so, so that's how some of that happened. But there are still people today that actually like their badger. And so, so I thought that, that was, that was really funny. He goes on to say, he, he says, uh, I'm going to go over to page 92. He said, there was nothing in sport or in gambling about sports which he had not tasted. This is his young, young, uh, soldier. Lastly, he was an officer who had served in, in three or four wars and who had been in circumstances of forlorn hope, rescued a comment, a comrade from a Zulu Asagay and bullets. So an Asagay is the, one of the Zulu spears that was just terrifying. Uh, they, they even have a word for it. If you got hit with a Zulu spear, you were Asagayed. You know, and so, so it was really pretty. But I remember watching a movie years ago about the Zulu war, and it was really terrifying. His opinion about public affairs, though tinged with an official you, were deeply practical, and on matters of conduct and etiquette, they were held by many to be decisive. And he's talking about the guy that ate badger. <laughs> so, so he might eat badger, but he was still, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty smart. Now he goes on to talk about Deep Dean. He says, "Thus, I paid frequent visits to Deep Dean with its comfort and splendor. I was never tired of listening to his wisdom or imparting my own. I always do remember his declaration." that there would never be another war between civilized people. And I think what he's talking to is he's, he is actually talking to his uncle here. You know, they could exchange ideas. But he said, often he said, I have seen countries come up to the very verge, but something always happens to hold them back. So, so his uncle believed that there wouldn't be another big war. This is prior to World War I and II. And uh, he said there, he says, often I have seen countries come up to the very verge, but something always happens to hold them back. There was too much good sense in the world, he thought, to let such a hideous thing as that break out among polite nations. Now, this is what Winston said. He's thinking back on this. He says, I did not accept this as conclusive, but it weighed with me, and three or four times when rumors of war filled the air, I rested myself upon it, and three or four times I saw it prove to be sure and true. It was the natural reflection of a life lived in the Victorian age. And essentially, I think what, what Winston is trying to tell us there, when you have a powerful empire, you have peace on the earth. And that's, what, that's what's gone. I mean, the British Empire is no longer powerful, and America is afraid to use its power, and, uh, you know, you can see where we're going. He, he goes on to say, he said, uh, um, however, there came a time when the world got into far deeper waters than Lord William Beresford, Beresford or his contemporaries had ever plumbed. And so, so it is a time, I think, of history that we need to look back at because history is repeating itself. And, and it's just, uh, 
you know, I taught this book in in uh, sophomore English years ago, and I feel like I'm getting more out of it now than I did then, and because we're living the way we're living. He goes on to say now, and this this is totally Winston. Uh, he meets Sir Bindon Blood. Now listen to this. This is really uh, I'm not surprised. He said it was the Deep Dean in 1896 that I first met Sir Bindon Blood. This general was one of the most trusted and experienced commanders on the Indian frontier. He was my host's lifelong friend. He had come home fresh from a successful storming of the Malakan Pass in the autumn of 1895. If future trouble broke out on the Indian frontier, he was sure to have a high command. He thus held the key to future delights. Now, what do you think he means by that, future delights? It wasn't future delights of Sir Bindon Blood. It was future delights of Winston Churchill. <laughs> he said, he, said uh, he, ha- he held the key to future delights. He said, I made good friends with him. One Sunday morning on the sunny lawns of Deep Dean, I extracted from the general a promise that if he commanded another expedition on the Indian frontier, he would let me come with him. <laughs> so, so here Winston's just getting out of Cuba. He's enjoying visiting the vanished world. He's having all the pleasures of London. And now he's thinking, where's my next battle? And so, so he's, uh, he, he's already got a promise from Sir Bindon Blood. He said, I sustained one disturbing experience at Deep Dean. Now, I, th- I think this is, is something uh, really, really interesting. And this is something for all of you young people out there. And I still consider myself a young person. And uh, I consider that I better pay attention to this as well. At the top of the page, I have written in my book, Winston did what he ought not. <laughs> and and uh, he says, I sustained one disturbing experience at Deep Dean. I was invited, and it was a great honor for a second lieutenant to join a weekend party given to the Prince of Wales. So, so you remember now, this estate, this is estate was been enjoyed by royals. His aunt and uncle own the estate. It's got these incredible gardens. It's it's just, you know, just uh, you can see all these ladies in their beautiful dresses and the men all dressed up with their ties and their their English outfits probably had long socks on and you know nice shoes and all that. And uh, he said, he's invited to a party with the Prince of Wales. He says, Colonel Brabazon was also among the guests. I realized that I must be upon my best behavior, punctual, subdued, preserved, and sure to display all the qualities which I am least endowed. I ought to have caught a six o'clock train to Dorking, but I decided to travel by the 715 instead. And so... So uh, that's where he made his big mistake. It's called human reason. <laughs> I'll get there on time. He was supposed to be there at 8.30. He said, this was running things very fine, but and, and he's not meaning fine. He's meaning close. It was running things very close. But it was not until my journey was half completed that I realized I should be almost certainly late for dinner. So, so here he's on the train. He realized, Prince of Wales, I'm going to be late for dinner. <laughs> so, so he says the train was to re- was due to arrive at eight eighteen, and then there would be ten minutes drive from the station. So he's thinking, oh yeah, well the train will get there at eight eight eighteen. Supposed to be there at eight thirty. Ten minutes to the to Deep Dean. He's going to be fine. 
He said, so I proceeded much of the corners of the gentleman who shared my carriage to dress in the train between the stations. <laughs> so, so <laughs> he wasn't even dressed appropriately. Left. So can you imagine? I, I could see Winston Churchill dressing on a train. I could just see it. I mean, he was not afraid to go skinny dipping in Cuba when they're shooting bullets at them. You know, it's just crazy. He says, so I proceeded with much to the concern of the gentleman who shared my carriage to dress the train between the stations. The train was horribly slow and seemed to lose a few minutes at each stop. Of course, it stopped at every station. It was 20 to 9 before I reached Dorking. <laughs> I nipped out of the carriage to find a servant on the platform evidently disturbed. So there's a servant, a servant from Deep Dean waiting for him to take him to the dinner. He says... Um, I jumped into the brogham, saw by the speed at which two, two horses were being urged that a serious crisis awaited me at my destination. However, I thought, oh, I'll just slip in and take my place almost unnoticed at the table and make my apologies afterwards. So, again, Winston did what he ought not. <laughs> he relied on his own human reason. And, uh, you know, those of us here at the college and uh, you were told, don't rely on your human reason. Here's a perfect example why you don't want to rely on your human reason. Uh, he said, when I arrived at Deep Dean, I found the entire company assembled in the drawing room. The party, it seemed, without me, would only be 13. And he said, and I thought, well, wait a second. Then he goes on to say, the prejudice of the royal family of those days against sitting down 13 is well known. So the royal family does not like the number 13. And even Queen Elizabeth herself did not like the number 13. So for any dinner, you either had to have 12 or 14. And so so I did not know that, but you can find that. And that there's a big thing on the, on the Internet right now. Will Charles accept the number 13? <laughs> That's actually up there today. So this is, no, this is well known. I, I don't remember any of this from when I taught this in, in sophomore English. So, so he said, um, The prejudice of the royal family of those days against sitting down 13 is well known. The prince had refused point blank to go in and would not allow any rearrangement of two tables to be made. He had, as his, was his custom, been punctual to the minute at half past eight. It was now 12 minutes to nine. <laughs> There in this large room stood this select and distinguished company in the worst of tempers, and there on the other hand was I, a young boy, asked as a special favor and compliment. Of course, I had a perfectly good explanation. Oddly enough, it was one that I have had to use on more than one occasion since. So so he had to make up a pretty good story of why this happened to him. And uh, uh, it's it's just... It's just crazy, just really crazy. He goes on to say, I had not started soon enough. I put it aside. I stammered a few words of apology and advanced to make my bow. And then this is what he has to go through. And this is from the prince. Don't they teach you to be punctual in your regiment, Winston? <laughs> said the prince in his most severe turn, tone and then looked acidly at Colonel Brabazon, who glowered. So here, Colonel Brabazon is now also getting <coughs> nailed because one of his one of his uh, uh, lieutenants 
is not punctual. And so, so uh, can you imagine, how could you even eat at a dinner like that after this happens? He said, it was an awful moment. We went into dinner two by two and sat down uh, an, an ex- unexceptionable 14. After about a quarter of an hour, the prince, who was naturally and genuinely kind-hearted man, put me at my ease again by some gracious chafing remark. And this is what the prince said to him. I do think unpunctuality is a vile habit, and all my life I have tried to break myself of it. I have never been able, said Dr. Weldon to me some years later, to understand the point of view of persons who make practice of being ten minutes late for each of a series of appointments throughout the day. I entirely agree with this dictum. And so, so uh, uh, anyway, the prince, the, the prince made a chaffering remark uh, you know that that uh, you know unpunctuality is a vile habit, and uh, but then this Doctor Weldon said to him, "Don't worry about it. I have the same problem." You know, and he said uh, it's better to cut out a few uh, a few appointments and to be on time. That's why how you fix it. So so uh, anyway, I, I think that's that's really really very very interesting. All right, um, what we're going to do now is uh, pages 94 through 100. Is, it's really about the, the Boer War. And the thing is, is I want to do uh, another whole program just on the Boer War. And so, so uh, th- there's a lot of, of politics in this. There's a lot of history there. And... Uh, uh, it, it's it's just really I think it'd be better if if uh, we just use this pages ninety four to one hundred as the introduction to that show that I that I want to uh, to do. I've done I I have done a program on the on the Boer War before, and so I you know I just want to uh, to uh, not let that uh, stop us today. All right, so. So we still have uh, about four or five minutes. So what I want to do now is I want to move on to chapter eight. And uh, essentially, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, you, you can, uh, again, just look at uh, chapter seven being over with the fact that uh, Winston Churchill had to learn not to be late for the Prince of Wales. So, so the thing is with chapter eight now, it, it is called India. And essentially what's happening now is Winston Churchill is now in his regiment. They're, they're heading for India. And so, so uh, you know, he, he got to go to Cuba. He got to, to really enjoy, you know, the vanished world. There is, you know, that's, all, that's all gone. And so, but now he's really getting his exciting move. He's going to be going to India. Now he's going to be going there for, for quite some time. He says, the time was now for us to embark for the east. We sailed from Southampton in a trooper carrying about 1,200 men and after a voyage of 23 days cast anchor in Bombay Harbor and pulled up the curtain on what might well have been a different planet. And so, so uh, England's gone. <laughs> Welcome to India. And so, so you know, it, it is. It would be shocking. It says, it might, it may be imagined how our whole shipful of officers and men were delighted after being cooped up for nearly a month to see the palms and palaces of Bombay lying about us in wide crescent. We gazed at them over the bulwarks across the shining and surfed rib waters 
Everyone wanted to go on shore at once and see what India was like. The delays and formalities of disembarkation which oppress the ordinary traveler are multiplied for those who travel at royal expense. And so, so, so one of the things I think we ought to just admit there, and I think that paragraph is just so well written. I mean, he's, he's really almost poetic the way he writes. And, uh, you know, uh, he said, we gazed over the bulwarks across the shining and surf rib waters. I mean, he didn't have to write it that way, but that's the way he wrote it. And he did a good job. And uh, uh, he says, however, about three o'clock in the afternoon, orders were issued that we were to land at eight o'clock when it would be cool. So, so can you imagine here they were traveling, uh, you know, a month <laughs> to get there. And then they, they finally get there and they couldn't go on until eight o'clock at night because it was hot. And uh, that's what we're experiencing here in, in Edmond. Uh, I haven't been able to run most of the summer because it's been so hot. It says, and in the meantime, a proportion of officers might go ashore independently. A shoal of tiny boats had been lying around us all day long, rising and falling with the swell. We eagerly summoned some of these. It took about a quarter of an hour to reach the quays of the Sassoon Dock. Glad I was to be there for the lively motion of the skiff to which I and two friends had committed ourselves was fast becoming our main preoccupation. We came alongside of a great stone wall with dripping steps and iron rings for handholds. The boat rose and fell four or five feet with the surges. I put out my hand and grasped a ring, but before I could get my feet on the steps, the boat swung away, giving my right shoulder a sharp and peculiar wrench. I scrambled up all right, made a few remarks of a general character, mostly beginning with the earlier letters of the alphabet, <laughs> hugged my shoulder, and soon thought no more about it. And so... So essentially what Winston Churchill does when he first gets to, to India is he dislocates his shoulder. <laughs> That's the way Winston is. And so, well, we're at page 102. And so uh, that's all the time I have for today's program. So on the next program, we will continue with Chapter 8, India, and we're going to go into a new phase of Winston Churchill's life. And so, so it really is going to get more exciting for us. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think you're going to really, really keep enjoying what's happening here. And so, uh, again, it, it is amazing to me that he could go from Cuba and then six months later go to India, you know, and uh, uh, he's going to run into to some real serious battles when he gets into India. All right. Well, that's uh, all the time we have for today's program. On our next program, we will continue with Chapter 8. And remember now, that's India. And he's left his mom. Uh, he's left the vanished world. He's left Polo. He's left his ponies. And so so it's, it's going to be interesting. Now, you can buy my early life at Amazon.com. You may be able to also find a good use copy at abebooks.com and I just want to say that I buy most of my books at abebooks.com because they're cheaper and you can find very fine or very good books they, they might be used but they're going to be a lot less money you may be able to find a copy in your local bookstore and of course you can also check your local library 
So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.